Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, with a mission to help provide you with the resources and tools to help make your music making more effective and enjoyable. During COVID-19, Houghton Horns has newly expanded policies that make it easier to purchase and test drive the best equipment during a time when safety and staying home are top priorities. There's a 15-day money-back guarantee with free shipping and free returns on new instruments and mouthpieces and multiple easy financing options on all inventory. Terms and conditions apply. If you're interested in trying out an amazing instrument in the selection of brass instruments that they have, now is the time. In addition to the musical instruments they provide, Houghton Horns is committed to creating high-quality music education content to help get great playing and pedagogy videos into the hands of those who need it. Check out HoughtonHorns.com and their YouTube channel, Houghton Horns, for more information. All right, that's enough from me. Let's get into the episode. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, uh, I have a really great guest, uh, a longtime friend, David Bender, second trombone of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. We actually went to grad school together and uh, haven't seen or uh, connected much since then. So this is a, a bit of an interview for all of you to hear, but also a bit of a way for me to reconnect with David. And so I'm really excited for this opportunity. First of all, I'd like to say, David, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Yeah, this is uh, this is going to be awesome. Uh, you've had such like, a, I mean, you you've ended up in Detroit, which is an amazing job. But you had sort of like a, a bit of a windy way, a bit of a way that um, you know, with going to Finland and stuff like that. So I'm I'm excited for you to be able to share some of your path with people that may not know it and kind of just your thoughts about it. So. In that vein, I suppose we'll just kind of go back as far as is relevant to sort of get a sense of how you got into music, and we'll just kind of follow your career from there. Um, sure. Well, to, to go back as far as when I got into music, you know, just started fifth grade band, like uh, everyone in my school was required to pick an instrument and play for one year. So I picked trombone. I don't remember why. Uh, I picked trombone and and just did it. I kept going and... Uh, I was very fortunate to have a great public school um, band program, especially at my high school, which was in the suburbs outside Chicago. Um, it was a huge program. There were like, the school has like 4,000 students. So there were four jazz bands, four orchestras, four <laughs> choirs, uh, four wind ensembles. So um, all, wow. all, all my, from my sophomore through my senior year, I was in. Uh, band, jazz band, and orchestra in high in my high school, and um, and besides me, I mean, I could think of like ten people from that my high school um, years that are in professional orchestras also. <laughs> so that's it was just, amazing. It, I, it's it's really weird looking back. I mean, now that knowing what I know, I know it's quite unusual, extremely unusual. Uh, but at the time, it seemed kind of normal. It seemed like no big deal to like want to 
go into music. So I think that was one of the reasons that it felt so natural for me um, coming out of high school to um, to continue to go into music because there were so many other uh, really high level, you know, high school music students around me that were going into music as well. Um, and so, like you mentioned, I went to Northwestern. Um, I was my undergrad when you met me, actually. <laughs> Did I say grad school? Yeah, your your yeah, grad school, so, my undergrad. That's right. I mean, I knew that, but maybe I didn't specify. Um, but we did graduate together. We played our the graduation recital or graduation right. quintet. That's right. <laughs> Pomp and circumstance arrangement. Um, so yeah, and then at Northwestern, you're kind of on the path, and if you don't get off the path, you're uh, you're doing you're, you're in music. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. One thing I was curious about with Northwestern that I wouldn't have been able to ask at the time, but. Uh, a very, you guys had a unique situation there with, I believe, four different teachers. I know Mulcahy, Michael Mulcahy was the regular teacher, but you got a lot of extra input. And so as opposed to my education was Barbara, 100% of the way, a little tiny bit of Charlie uh, sprinkled in there. And so I'm kind of curious for you, just that's right out of the gate. What do you feel like the pros and the cons were for you having that many teachers? Because I feel like there are probably pros and cons uh, of it. And I'd just be curious for your reflections upon that. Yeah. So um, just to reiterate, like uh, Michael Mulcahy, I would say is like the the main teacher, the, the head of the studio. And he is sort of responsible for bringing in all these other teachers because of his schedule and, and everyone else's schedule. They're not able to be full time. But um uh, because the studio is a, a little bit large, it's like 20 or 25, depending on the year. So normally I would study, let's say, half the time with Mulcahy and then like one quarter of the time with maybe when, when I was there with like Pete Ellison or Randy Hawes or my freshman year, Randy wasn't teaching, but Charlie Vernon was still teaching at Northwestern. So my freshman year, I started with like like 50% lessons with Mulcahy and like 25% with Pete and Charlie. Mm-hmm. Um and then by my senior year, Randy had joined and Tim Higgins had joined. Um, so it was like, you know, sort of that ratio, but with now four teachers instead of three. Um, so personally, I found it really great. And um, one of the things that I think Michael Mulcahy's kind of vision for the school, the, his studio is that he brings in these other teachers that I that he knows are fairly similar to his sort of playing philosophy or the hierarchy of what he likes in playing. So it is still uh, very um, similarly focused or similar in approach, but obviously everyone's going to explain things differently and everything is, every teacher is going to hear a different aspect of a, of the same student uh, than a different teacher is going to hear. So for example, my freshman year <laughs> and people who, our trombonists that study with Charlie Vernon will will know this type of thing. Charlie's way of teaching is, you know, you sit across from each other and he's playing and then you play. And then he says, well, we'll make it sound more like this. And then he plays. And <laughs> it's very simple, but it's very uh, effective, honestly. You know, it's, it's putting your great example of playing right in front of you and it's not really telling you how to do it, but it's t- giving you the example that you want to go for. Compare that to, let's say, um, my lessons with Michael Mulcahy, which he is very, um, you know, well-spoken and he has a very large vocabulary of explaining things about 
the trombone or about music. So it's the complete opposite. Of course, he would play. There, a lot of our lessons were playing together, but he would explain things very, uh, very carefully. And I actually appreciated that as well because I kind of could understand, you know, these concepts when he was starting to go off. So the pros, the pros to me are that you get sort of the same goal, but you get a lot of different paths how to get there, or you get a, you have a lot of different um, instruction on on the the end product. Um, now, this wasn't my own personal experience, but I could imagine that a con would be if you need very a regimented or regular like checking in with with your teacher like every week i'm working on this etude i want to do this and this um you kind of miss that a little bit uh it's a little bit more self um self-organized you have to be a little more organized um because if you let's say if you have a lesson with mulcahy and then not another one for two weeks or a lesson with pete and not another one for a month if it goes, you know, trading off 25%. Yeah, um, right. So you lose a little bit of the continuity of seeing the same person every week. Uh, personally, I don't, I mean, I can't go back in time. I don't think that hurt me too much, but I could imagine that being an, a, uh, a detriment for some people. Yeah, what you described about Charlie I, is interesting to me. This is a very common, I think, especially in that sort of Chicago school, if you want to call it that, that it's very sound oriented and driven, but from a teaching perspective as well, not just a playing, but from a teaching, just model the sound. And do you, what is your experience if you have taught also this way? Because in my experience, some people are going to be able to have great ears and pick it up, but some people, no matter how many times you model something beautiful or great, they might not be able to pick it up in the same way. And it would take some sort of explanation or process driven teaching to be able to um, and for reinforce some of those habits. Have you found that to be true for you and your teaching or just kind of opening up about what you feel like um, is a effective balance? Um, you know, I'll be perfectly honest. I consider teaching to be quite difficult, like, you know, to really explain something to a student or get a student to, to grow to a new level is quite difficult. And I don't consider myself to be that, <laughs> that, um, you know, frankly, very good at it, you know? So what I do is sort of what you described. I try to play, I try to model. And when someone is, a little stuck, you know, I find it difficult to find, to find new ideas on how to, how to get them to improve. Now, that being said, I honestly don't teach very much. Um, I teach a lot with our youth orchestra, uh, the Detroit Symphony Civic Ensembles. Um, so mostly sectionals. I really like sectionals and like working with sort of a group of students. I think I'm able to get sections sounding better and better. Uh, but for whatever reason here in Detroit, I haven't grown a, a big private studio very much. I think that's amazing that you're so willing to just to say, like, I do have my limitations and <laughs> feel like a lot of people are basically just will make something up. But I think it's awesome that you are willing to uh, be that open and acknowledging of like, basically, I just haven't done that as much. I mean, awesome. I, I had a like a sixth grade beginner student a couple years ago, and I felt like I was doing him a disservice. Mm -hmm. Because I was trying to teach him the way that, you know, I was taught <laughs> when I was in high school or something. I was like, just, you know, just breathe and, and do this. And, you know, uh, 
at a certain, at that young age, there needs to be a little bit more practical instruction, you know, on how to, how to do stuff. So uh, I readily admit I, I am, I feel like I, I'm a good teacher for a really developed player, but it's, it, it's difficult to me to explain the very beginning steps of how to get there. Yeah, I would agree, actually. I feel like it's a bit of a specialized thing to be truly sort of adept at helping beginners sort of know what those steps are. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's this trombone teacher in Chicago, Tim Reardon, who teaches at the Merritt School of Music, who's amazing at producing... Um, really great really great students by the end of high school um his his students at the merit school usually go into or he usually has a few a year that go into great programs um it's kind of crazy i know of like a few trombone teachers that aren't in colleges but they are really kind of well known for producing really good students by the end of high school so it's definitely a skill like a specialized sure. skill i know some people are going to be interested in your time at Northwestern being surrounded by such great teaching outside of the trombone studio as well. And the Chicago symphony, obviously Uh, I'm just curious if you kind of want to reflect back on your time at Northwestern and things you feel that you did really well, uh, things that you felt like really benefited you in moving forward in your career and maybe reflecting on some things that you wish you might have taken more advantage of or things that you kind of maybe, I don't know about wish you would have done differently, but I think you know what I'm, what I'm headed after. Yeah, I think um, the thing that I did well, and that's something that Michael Mulcahy really impressed upon us, was to go hear the Chicago Symphony as often as possible. And I, I kind of alluded to it that I'm, I was, I'm originally from the suburbs of Chicago. I was born in Evanston and um, lived in Cook County, which is the county of Chicago and Evanston my whole life until I was 22. So starting in high school, I was listening to the Chicago Symphony maybe once every four weeks, probably like once a month, twice a month. And then um, at Northwestern, I was going probably three or four times a month, as long as there was a decent program, uh, which usually there was. Um, Mm -hmm. So and any any time I'm at, I'm hearing or any time I meet a college musician, a college student studying music, I usually ask them like how often you know wherever city they're in, how often do you go hear your orchestra? And it's pretty, uh, it's definitely a correlation, if not causation, that the better students go listen to the the local symphony way more often than the not so good students. Um, so that's um, growing up in, or going to school in Chicago was a huge benefit to, to go hear the, the, the CSO every week. Um, your other question, things I could have Just, done better. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, when you're a student, well, okay, I'll just speak for myself. I shouldn't speak for everyone. When I was a student, um, I think there's a little bit of competitiveness or a little bit of like showmanship that I was, I don't, I wasn't trying to do it, but maybe it was in the back of my head. So I was probably not as, um, not as open to taking, to, to learning from my, from other students as I could have been, you know, because everyone at Northwestern or any music school, any good, you know, music school, you're around the students a lot more than you're around your teachers. And when you're around great students like you or um, ah, blanking, <laughs> but other there were tons of them at that yeah, time. There's so yeah, there's so many. I mean, I could just think of the trumpet studio like you, Stuart, Steve, uh, 
Mikhailo. Um, yeah. <laughs> when you're around great people, great students, that's as much of an opportunity to learn as your lessons are. And I think if I had gone back, I should have uh, should have played trombone quartets more, should have played a brass quintet more. I think, you know, I didn't have a, a chamber. I didn't have a chamber group. Like I know some of my, some of my colleagues now are like, oh yeah, I was in a quintet for four years, you know, same people all four years. So I wish I would have done that a little more, a little more chamber music, something more regular, you know? Yeah, I was, I was kind of similar. We ended up playing in quintet. I think my second year I played in a quintet, but um, yeah, obviously you're surrounded by so much great playing and, but it can be easy from that competitive place to feel like, well, I can't be open, you know, with these people. I got to protect my secret and I'm competing with them. You know, I remember thinking I got to play piccolo better than like Kyle Upton or something, you know, (laughs) and that was kind of what drove me at that time. But instead of like trying to in secret, get better than Kyle, I also could have just like played the trumpet with Kyle more often, Right? you know, I totally agree. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, make it sound so terrible the trombone studio we got along great and everyone was really you know friendly so i was just sort of um i just wish i would have you know played section excerpts more with people i think i should correct myself i did have a quartet and we did competitions together with uh with will baker and, and jeremy and case um, that's the gold standard the, right the gold, the gold standard <laughs> trombone quartet um so of course we did a lot together but um always could have done more right sure sure uh, and then you you got the job in Finland your senior year, right? Yeah, or was it, it was at- it was May. I, I want to say May twelfth of my senior year um, that I uh, won the audition for that for that position. So I think we should. I would like to sort of unpack this as much as possible because it's not just that the audition is different, which we should talk about, but just what is it like to be a senior in college and then you win a job and then now it's like I'm going to move to Finland and like be in a completely different country all by myself like I'm sure it was not just like yeah let's do this I'm sure there was an amount of this is kind of a scary thing to consider and how did you make that choice you're obviously doing well enough in an audition and you were at a great school for that that you could have maybe waited and there would have been another opportunity for you. So essentially, I'm just curious, like how you, let's talk about the audition first and then just sort of how you went through that sort of decision-making process. Yeah. Um, well, s- sorry, I'm just going to jump uh, one thing that you said, which was that I did have like, I had a different plan. My plan, because I was in Civic, uh, Chicago Civic, um, my senior year. And so I had another year left. So my plan was to not go to grad school right away and just like be in Chicago and play in civic and try to practice a little more. Um, so my senior year taking auditions, my first real professional audition that I prepared well for was for the Washington national opera, which was in January of that year. And back in like November, December, I had decided that I was really going to like do it correctly, like really do a a good job of preparing. Um, Because I was, um, I wouldn't say I suffered from stage fright or like nerves. Um, It was just slight. I had a slight issue with nerves um, throughout, you know, playing in studio class or summer festival auditions. Um, My biggest symptom was a little bit of shaking, especially with my knees. 
You know, I felt like when I was standing, I was shaking. Years later, I would say I, I figured out I could sit and I wouldn't shake as badly. Mm. Um, you know, easy fix, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but back then, so um, a, a really big, helpful kind of not. I, I guess I call it a breakthrough. Was I was reading Don Green's books. You know, the audition success, performance Abs- success. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the centering technique just worked really well for me. Um, if your listeners read the books, they'd know what I, this means. But it's basically a real. It's a you practice to be able. It's a little bit like meditation. Uh, you practice to be able to kind of clear your mind and really focus. And you you practice to do that really quickly. So because in, obviously in an audition you have just 10, 30 seconds in between excerpts. So Don Green's techniques are like a really like a like a five second like power meditation <laughs> of um, of trying to focus in to get ready to play and I found that very helpful I, I took I followed those instructions and the nerves kind of have ever since then not really been a problem for me because I do uh, some auditions I don't do that and then it's a little bit of a problem but if mm. I if I follow those steps it's just very helpful so um and then as far as preparing for the audition. I uh, followed Tim Higgins' advice, and Tim said he had based it sort of on Mike Roylance's technique of or uh, practice schedule, which was just taking excerpts, um, playing them at half tempo for a, a long time, like let's say for nine days. Another thing that you do is you, like let's say if there are 30 excerpts on a list, you divide it into three groups, so 10 excerpts a day. You only practice those 10 in the day. Um, you also randomize it because you never know what's going to happen on the day of the audition. So you make the list of each day, or sorry, you make the groups randomly. And then every day one, day two, every day one, you would practice them in a random order mm-hmm. and you would just do it very slowly. You'd go play at half tempo. You don't even touch, you know, full speed for weeks. You just very slowly, 50% tempo. Um, maybe you go through this cycle three times, so that takes nine days. Then 60% tempo, maybe one time. Then 75% tempo, maybe twice, so that takes six days. That sort of really methodical, slow plan of ramping up the tempo, um, and it might take like five weeks. So for five weeks, you're going from half tempo to full tempo, and then you're at full tempo for maybe one or two weeks after that, and then you're ready for the audition. So the process takes about seven weeks. That's crazy. My, I, I, sorry, that's I, I'm all into this organizational <laughs> stuff, right? And I, we, Mike told us at Tanglewood what his method was, and I was like, okay, but I wasn't thinking like that back then. But it's so similar to the way I have come to approach auditions as well, like almost exactly in some yeah. ways. That's so weird. Sorry. Wow. I mean. You know, um, what am I trying to say? I don't remember what the specific story is, but there's so many instances in like science that like scientific discoveries are made at the same time by like different <laughs> people on this, you know, because like smart people thinking about the same problem, you know, it's not surprising that you come up with similar solutions, it's, right? Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Um, I'll show you some of my my calendars or my plans. You'd, you'd appreciate it. Um, and the funny thing is, little tweaks here and there, but pretty much every audition I've ever taken, I've done the same thing. So since like my senior year at Northwestern, 
30 auditions ago. <laughs> um, uh, it's always back to half tempo, half tempo tuba Miram. It's a little boring, but, um, and then you only spend, you only need to spend about 10 minutes per excerpt uh, per day. So if you do 10 excerpts, that's about an hour and a half, maybe two hours with breaks. Right, right. Um, so I only, I mentioned the Washington National Opera because that was really formative for me. I kind of figured out my plan, both with the Don Green mental stuff and with the Mike Roylance plan, you know, the, the seven weeks. I, it's either six to eight weeks for me. Um, so then for Finland, it was in May. Um, the, the whole reason that I took the audition was because um, a doctoral student at Northwestern had been in the orchestra, had been in the, the opera orchestra previously. And so he kind of sent an email to the studio and it was like, hello, everyone, like this job is open. And it's like, pretty okay. If you want more information, like, let me know. <laughs> and I think it was only, it was me and maybe Sean Keenan uh, yeah. replied back and Sean ended up not doing it, but I was the only one that went and did the audition. Um, and I had to fly there. So I flew from Chicago to Helsinki um, on SAS. I think I, I wouldn't do this now, but back then I thought like, oh, I want to make sure I like get settled. So I think I flew in on a Saturday and the audition wasn't until Monday or maybe even Tuesday. Now I wouldn't do that because I don't like taking so many like travel unusual days before the audition. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, I practiced a little bit at the hotel. I, I practiced, I tried to get into like the Sibelius Academy and like practiced for like 10 minutes before getting kicked out. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I get there as, as far as how the audition goes, it was only my second real professional audition. So I didn't really know what was normal or not normal. Now that I know what's normal, it actually was pretty normal. Um, mm. The only kind of, or the kind of typical thing in Europe is to play a concerto with a pianist in the first round. Um, for the trombonist, we always play the David concerto. Sometimes in France, they play the Dutilleux, um, not to get off on a tangent. Um, so that's different than American auditions, um, to play with a pianist that you've never rehearsed with before because they've played, they're playing with people for hours and hours. Um, this, the standard concerto, in this case, it was behind the screen. I took a lot of auditions in Germany, which were not behind the screen. Um, so it kind of felt like a performance, which I didn't mind, but could be a different, a different feeling. Yeah. Um, back to the Finnish audition. It was the, that was the first round, then the second round, more excerpts, third round, section round. So in that way, it's very typical of of an Amer similar, I should say, similar to an American audition. Yeah, uh, that's mostly the thing. I was kind of, I mean, I guess maybe it's not as exciting as I made it out to be. Just having the solo in the first round, it's just an interesting difference, you know, because you actually get you you would get to play with some personality and some individualism as opposed to what first rounds are normally here. It's, you know, for us, like pictures, pines, Petrushka, Mahler fives, everybody's going to play them about the same way, generally speaking. So you, it's hard to have individuality in that first space where it would be important to separate yourself. So I think it's a pretty interesting and cool difference yeah. um, for those auditions. It's definitely, um, for us, for us Americans who want to go over there, it's it's a little of a different experience. I'll just explain what I mean. You know, if 
always felt to me a little bit like seat of the pants just because of of no rehearsal um the the tuning on the piano was always really high <laughs> you know up to like i think some of the german orchestras were like at 444 um mm. and it really wouldn't look good if you like brought out a tuner on stage so <laughs> you got like five seconds to push in and figure out where the pitch is right um so and i would say i mean i will say to your listeners that in i took a lot of auditions in germany switzerland and austria while i was living in finland and i never advanced it was always david in the first round with a pianist sometimes behind the screen sometimes without and uh i never advanced so to your point of playing with personality either i had the wrong personality or not the, yeah. not enough of the right one interesting um but there is i mean i i don't have any ill ill will about that some of them i shouldn't have advanced for some of them i felt like it was okay i could have um but you know to be fair it, i mean it's perfectly okay for um for certain orchestras in in certain cities to have a a style or something they want to hear and um just because i wasn't i didn't study in germany so i didn't quite know what that was so um you know that's the reality that's been my experience too in auditions recently it's i i like won the ones that i have won uh but from there it's I feel like I'm playing the trumpet better than I've ever played the trumpet, and I can't seem to get out of the first round of a lot of auditions. One frustrating thing for me is continuing to want to try and keep going back and doing it, whether it's for the same orchestra or not. So I'm kind of curious if you have any thoughts on that kind of grit you must have had to continue going back when it didn't seem like it's working. Maybe you even know that, well... This orchestra in Germany maybe has a certain way. I don't know what that way is, but you would still go and try anyway. Where does this kind of grit come from for you? What's the mentality that like allows you to keep going back rather than just saying, you know what, this is Europe. I don't know what's going on. I'm just <laughs> going to do my thing and call it a day. I guess I was. Um, I guess I had some confidence because I already had a position, um, you know, in Finland. I wouldn't. I mean, I'll try to. Ah, it's hard for me to explain. I guess I just felt. It did, it wasn't discouraging when I didn't win an audition or even if I didn't advance. Of course, if I played well, it was like, well, what happened? Um, but to me, it wasn't. No single audition I took was like the most important thing in my life. Um, of course, I wanted to play well, but the fact that I lost, I, I eventually realized. Of course, I didn't know this when I was so young, but I eventually realized, you know, your life doesn't really change if you win an audition. Of course, your maybe your circumstances do and like where you live and maybe the people that you hang out with. Um, and if you're lucky, maybe your salary increases. I think that's a big thing. But in terms of like how you feel day to day or like your personality like doesn't change. So if you can kind of realize that they've, it's not such a, it's not such a huge disappointment to not win. Um, and I did take a lot, like just in those three years, I lived in Finland for three years and I, I wrote it all down somewhere. I think I took like 20 auditions mm, wow. in those three years, mostly in Europe, maybe once or twice a year back to the US. I couldn't like, you know, go back and forth every week. Um, so I was doing well. Um, I, I mean, I mentioned I never advanced in, in Europe. I mean, I never advanced in Central Europe. I, I was a finalist in the for the Danish Radio Symphony 
which was right before Detroit, which I ended up winning, and a few American auditions I was also a finalist for. Um, so I was having some success, you know, sure, I, sure. and I kind of just chalked it up to not knowing the German style. Um, and another thing that was really helpful while I was in Europe, I was traveling to study and take lessons with some trombonists over there, um, like Ian Bousfield, who's a, a very famous trombonist, and um, Jamie Williams, who's principal in the Deutsche Oper in Berlin, and Jesper Sorensen, who was at Northwestern for one year in like 2006 or seven. I heard um, about him. Well, that was back when Northwestern had a one-year master's program, <laughs> mm. um, which they had to get rid of or they were going to lose their accreditation. <laughs> 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 um, but back then you could, there were like, I don't know, you, it was probably before your time, but because I was in high school, I saw at Northwestern that there were a lot of Europeans uh, doing this one-year master's program, you know, because it was a lot easier to get there. Um, but anyway, I, I was taking lessons. So I was taking lessons while I was in Europe. Um, and not, I don't know how many, maybe three or four a year, which is obviously is not as many as when you're in school, but each lesson was very important to me. And I was trying to really take it to heart. So there are so many things going on with me taking auditions, but also taking lessons and, and thinking about, um, where I was living that, it wasn't discouraging. I never, I never felt discouraged about auditions. I felt definitely discouraged about things about my trombone playing that I wanted to get better. Um, but when losing an audition was never such a, you know, you're maybe feel bad that that night, but I wasn't like hung up for, for weeks or months on it. I guess that's me, me personally. I don't know. I think it's a great perspective. I, I would agree with you. I just, I had to like get a job to find out that it's actually not doesn't change anything like you said, <laughs> um, and so I, I think it's I think that message is really important for people to hear. It's hard to believe and it's hard to hear sometimes when you're sort of gunning for that kind of life. It's hard to accept, but I think it's important to to talk about. Um, I, I think the sort of the final part I would like to dig into about Finland is just. That part where you're, you know, 21, 22 years old, and you're going to make this decision to, you know, leave the United States. What's that like? Were you scared to do it? Uh, were you excited about doing it? Kind of what was the thing that made you leave this particular plan you had and go to do this other plan that um, was in a different country? Um, definitely excited. You know, I I hadn't studied abroad, um, but I'd kind of looked into it my junior or sophomore year. Um, and, you know, I always had, I don't, I don't know if I want to say I wanted to visit Europe, but I've always had like, you know, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, I always thought that it was a possibility and it was, uh, I didn't, I just didn't see it as being that scary or like that different somehow. I just kind of approached it like. I guess I just approached it with an open mind and no expectations. I didn't assume that it would be scary and I didn't think that it wouldn't be scary. I don't know. Um, and it was, um, I was doing a competition in Paris in the, in the summer. I had already known that I was going to do this a little earlier in the year. So in May, when I had decided that I was going to move to Finland <laughs> in August, I just kind of went to the competition and just like stayed. I kind of bummed around and couch surfed for about six weeks. Um, 
And then I got to Finland and I went to the immigration, you know, police department and realized that I kind of didn't do a few steps that I should have done. (laughs) So, um, but then at that point, rehearsals were starting. And once I got into the rehearsals, I realized, you know, rehearsals are the same in Europe and in America, you know, everyone's sitting there, the conductor's talking and you're playing and, and it just, I kind of just felt, uh, you know, it slipped right in or I felt like it was not such a big deal. Um, uh, you know, I, I, some, some of my, some people have said like, oh, did you, you, you're so adventurous. I was like, well, I don't know. It didn't feel like an adventure. It just felt like, like, playing in an orchestra, but it was a different country and they spoke a different language. So, uh, <laughs> That's I don't cool. know. Uh, one thing I'm curious about too, it was principal, right? The job was, that you won there? It was co-principal. Co-principal. So it was an opera orchestra. So there are five trombones in the section. Oh, okay. Did you, obviously coming from a place like Northwestern, the level is high, uh, but it's not the same thing as an actual job where you're doing different, you know, lots of different rehearsals and all that kind of stuff. I'm kind of curious, uh, what was learning on the job like for you? Uh, did you do some things that were kind of green? Do you feel like you sort of just fit right in and just kind of had it all figured out? Just what was your experience? No, no, no one has it figured out. (laughs) Um, (laughs) definitely did lots of inexperienced green things. My worst, well, so in an opera orchestra, it's different than symphony orchestra. Symphony orchestra, you know, I'm sure you uh, would agree. Uh, it's like week by week. You know, you have four rehearsals, four concerts, then the next week, four rehearsals, four concerts. And the rep is kind of concentrated. Um, you have concentrated practice and concentrated performances. Whereas an opera orchestra, and I think this is true at the big houses like the Met or, or Lyric or San Francisco, and definitely like all of the big houses in, in Europe, um, you have a rehearsal period that could be like two weeks long of only one, only talking about one production. You do like one rehearsal on one week, then the five days later, another rehearsal. And then the performances might stretch for like weeks and weeks or a month, you know, because you're rotating the rep so much that you might play La Traviata. Maybe there's one or two La Traviatas a week for like seven weeks. Mm. So by the time you're at the seventh week, you know, you don't remember the rehearsal. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the the learning on the job part was being able to, this, this might sound weird, like trust the music that's written. And especially when other people are marking things in the music, like like cutoffs or watch the conductor or or, like, or something like that um because certain productions if it was if it was not if it was not a new production in Finland we we did four rehearsals like one orchestra two technical and one dress so mm-hmm. and because remember i mentioned that there are five trombones so we were rotating so you only play like 3 fifths of the rehearsal and, oh. and once in a while, so maybe once in a while, you only play one rehearsal before you jump in. <laughs> and since I was learning everything, you know, that was, uh, had to jump in a lot. Um, yeah. So there were definitely some, I I can't remember if I've ever crashed in on a recitative. That's another thing, recitatives I'd never really experienced before, you know, where the, the conductor just gives us something. And if it's an offbeat recitative, that's really like an offbeat, like in Verity, will be like this really loud, huge chord, 
like if a singer says something dramatic and it's like pop and it's it's hard to come in <laughs> that like from silence like with the whole orchestra and especially if you don't know the piece very well so i probably you know maybe a little early a little late there my worst mistake definitely was um in a performance of don carlo which is a, a verity opera um and toward the end like the fourth act or the fifth act there's a aria that begins with just trombones trombones and chimbasso like a quartet and i'll sing it for you da 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 um and my final da da i played a wrong note and i made a, a b minor chord into a b major chord <laughs> I, played a, I played a d i played a d sharp instead of a d natural and um, there's nothing you can do. I, I held it <laughs> because it would have sounded worse to uh, to to slide down. Um, the, the the I'll never forget the conductor. He he didn't even look mad. He looked like disappointed. Um, <laughs> by far my worst mistake ever in my career. Um, so <laughs> it's possible to recover. But um, in a lot of ways, I was glad. When I would did something like that, I felt like, of course, the world is very large, but I felt a little glad that I did all my mistakes over there. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I. it's interesting because it can feel... I, I've seen and been a part of concerts with those huge mistakes, and they can seem like the world is ending, you know? But it's like... The show goes on. Yeah, there's another two. Another... There, there are another two hours to the opera after yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and then you'll do it again later, and then again. You know, it, it just yeah. can seem like everything revolves around that moment. But um, well, actually, I love stories like that. It's it's it's. I I also remember I was playing principal that night, and so I turned. I sat to my left. I I turned to the principal trumpet after the performance. I said, I I'm so sorry, and he said, for what? I said, oh, for that for that one note. He said. I've had a career full of one notes. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So he was, yeah. I mean, everyone there was so nice to me and, and very, very collegial. Yeah. When I was in Indianapolis, there's, they had this um, Yuletide show, which is basically the same Christmas show for the entirety of December. There's like 27 of them. It generates a lot of money. It's a super high production thing. It's awesome. And so when they give you their calendars in Indianapolis, Sunday is on like the wrong side of the calendar, right? It's like a calendar that starts on Monday instead mm -hmm. of Sunday. And so I was looking through it and Sunday night started at six, but I didn't see it because all the other shows started at eight or something. So I was basically like Sunday night, it's going to start at eight. And I uh, am like eating dinner at like 5.55 and I get a call and I could hear a trombone warming up in the background. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm missing something right now. <laughs> and then uh, it was Marvin Chapman Perry, the second. He said, Ryan, do you know you're supposed to be here right now? And I was like, if I knew I was supposed to be there, I'd probably be there right now, you know? <laughs> Smart so answer. I, yeah. And so I like got dressed and sped there. I was like three tunes into the thing. And then I was freaking out. Yeah, I was freaking out. This is a huge deal. I don't have tenure yet. And then I, the principal horn, a uh, really beautiful guy, I was apologizing, you know, to everybody probably. And he's just like, "Look, like it's happened to everybody. You know, don't do it again." But it's like happened to everybody. And you just realize 
everybody was like 21 at some point, you know? <laughs> so, all right. Well, that's enough stories from, from my particular career. Um, we can get into Detroit a little bit because uh, it's an amazing thing. Uh, it's a, obviously a amazing orchestra, beautiful hall, um, a lot of exciting stuff. You guys have the, like the live stream stuff that happens with regularity, which is yeah. awesome, kind of paving new way for what that could look like. And um, I assume you're playing right now. I've seen some pictures. Yeah. Right? Um, yes. Uh, they are doing virtual concerts. Um, the live streaming, actually, the DSO started doing that back in like 2013 or 14. Yeah. Um, so besides the Berlin Phil, which you had to subscribe, the DSO was like the only orchestra in the country, in the world for a few years that was live streaming their classical concerts. And for, and we did it all for free. Um, so it was, uh, it's not, how should I say? Well, when the, when the pandemic happened and the lock and, and the, everyone moved to live streaming, the DSO already had the technology and already had the infrastructure to kind of just, just keep going on it. Um, so we are playing. It's reduced, obviously. Um, originally, the orchestra was split in half, and it was like a two. It was like a week on, week off thing, uh, just in case if there was a musician that needed to be isolated, they like already were a week off. If you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, and and obviously reduced instrumentation. Uh, so actually, for the trombones, personally, I haven't played much. Um, I played maybe two weeks of the early in the year, and then there's a there's a holiday brass concert in December. Um, but there are things like I, I know the orchestra is doing Pulcinella in a few weeks, but Ken is playing that, and um, there was another week that only had bass trombone. So I haven't been in there so much this last couple of months, but um, it's it's they've added a lot of stuff online uh, that we've been doing. Um, but I think you also asked about the audition. Was that right? So yeah, about the audition. I'm just kind of curious. Uh, I know that a lot of people are interested in audition success stories and what that preparation is. You, I've already kind of talked about what it looks like for you to prepare. So if it was similar, uh, that's that's awesome. That's cool. Um, did you have a trial week? Kind of what was it like just sort of getting into the... And then what is that job like for you to do? Yeah, so... Um, it was I um, it was similar to the preparation I already talked about. I basically did the exact same thing. Um, uh, so I had to fly in. You know, I flew from Helsinki to Chicago on a Sunday um, because I had to get my car from my parents' house. Um, and then on Monday, I took a lesson with Michael Mulcahy, and also I played section excerpts. Actually, I don't remember. I think it was section. I think I played some solo and some section excerpts in the studio class at Northwestern. So it was like Monday at 6 p.m. when I started driving to Detroit. Um, and I knew I was only going to drive halfway. And, you know, I was jet lagged, so I felt very tired. So I drove for probably about three hours and stopped somewhere in Indiana. Um, and I requested the audition that was happening on Monday, Tuesday for the first round. And I requested to go late on Tuesday. So the personnel manager put me almost last. So I was mm. going on Tuesday at like 4 p.m. So, you know, I woke up very early because of the jet lag and uh, I drove the rest of the way on Tuesday. I got into Detroit probably at like 12, maybe one. Um, just kind of hung out, killed time. And then at the audition, um, pretty typical, uh, you know, warm up, played the first round it went well and i advanced and then the second round was at 9 p.m or sorry the second round 
since I was last in the first round, I was also last in the second round. So the second round was starting around that time, five or 6 p.m., a dinner break, you know. Um, so I had I went and had a quick dinner, and then I came back to the hall, and then I was waiting in my room, and I actually fell asleep <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I was, I was jet-lagged. You know, like 8 p.m. is like uh, 2 a.m. in Helsinki. Mm-hmm. So I was pretty tired, and um, I fell asleep in my warm-up room. Uh, it was like there was like a couch, and then it was like nine fifteen that I finally was I got up to play. Um, so I'd already warmed up, you know. I warmed up, fell asleep, and then like kind of drowsily woke up and like played for another five minutes. <laughs> uh, so, so then I went and did my the second round, and I think I was either the one of the last people to go. Actually, I think I was second to last. Um, the second round was okay. They had me play a few things again, you know. Try to try to not rush there. Watch your intonation there. Um, you know, all valid. And so, I advanced, and I was the only one to advance to the finals, which was the next day at a like after the morning rehearsal. Um, so the finals were was still behind the screen. You know, in, in Detroit, um, the screen is up all the way into the finals, and then there's a vote. Uh, if the candidate like passes the final round and then if there's a super final with like a section round uh, then the screen can come down so it was a section so even though I don't really know what happened because even though I was the only one there they wanted a section round also (laughs) Um, actually another funny story before the section round in the final round the solo was a Bach Sarabande from the fifth cello suite which is kind of typical for for like bass trombone or this was a second trombone, but so they wanted to hear some low register stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I realized that I didn't have the music uh, because I'd always just practiced it from memory. And I never do that. I never do memory. I always make my audition booklet, even though obviously I have Tuba Mira memorized and Bolero. Right, memorized. right. But I always just have the music. But I realized like as I was walking to the stage, like, huh, I never actually printed that one off <laughs> for the box Sarban. <laughs> um, and I was like, you know what? They probably will have it on the stand. Like, you know, in professional auditions, you always have the music on the stand. No, it was not there. Uh, but luckily I didn't, <laughs> luckily I, I didn't mess up. That's uh, awesome. I didn't even consider, you know, if like if I practice a concerto or something for memory, I practice it a certain way to be prepared to right. do it from memory, right? I didn't do that at all. So like, you know, <laughs> things went well, thankfully. Um, so anyway, the section round, that's when Randy, you know, was my former teacher, like found out that it was me. So, you know, we were really happy to see each other. Then the section round, another funny story. They they asked for a Bruckner 7, but the second movement, which is a little obscure. Mm-hmm. And um, there's this this kind of, it's a chorale that starts soft and, and crescendos to be loud. Um, and I remember the first note in the second trombone part is like a D double sharp. And Ken was talking to me about what to do, like in the in the in the chorale. And I just had like a mental blank on a D double sharp. Like, what position is that in? Because <laughs> <laughs> also it's in tenor clef, so a D is like way at the bottom. And I was, it just looked weird the little double sharp symbol and i was like what note is that and i was really i i was like taking a breath in still like i think this is right <laughs> and then immediately when we started playing i real i it was right and then i like remembered it 
um, I've listened to Bruckner 7 a lot, you know. So I remembered, oh, it's this excerpt. Okay, now it was fine. But it was like a it was like a good 30 seconds where I was like, I don't know how this is going to happen. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's a very weird... In my final round of Indianapolis, the offstage call from Heldenleben was on there. And it's like... And so the second trumpet starts on B flat and the first trumpet starts on D, which are both first valve. And so I started playing the first trumpet part, but I started on a B flat. I just played the wrong partial by accident, like the final round. And I know I figured it out maybe one measure into it. I was like, what am I going to do right now? Do I just like fix it halfway through and just keep going? So I, I ended up stopping. And then I just looked at the proctor and said, I'm going to do that again. <laughs> if you are okay. And they're like, yeah, okay. And yeah. then I you know, played it well or whatever. But yeah, stuff like that is so surreal when you're in the middle and you're this thing I've practiced so many times. What's actually happening right now? Right. Just when like you forget, yeah, D double sharp. Like what position is that in? <laughs> um, uh, it's in second. Don't worry. Um, so, you know, funny stuff like that. And um so, um, yeah, uh, I had a trial week after that where I had to come back. Um, and that was back in, I think it was in March or sorry, the audition was in February. I think the trial was in late April and first week of May. It was actually two weeks they asked me for. And the first week was Bruckner four with Leonard Slacken. And I originally, and actually I learned later on, I think that that concert was supposed to be conducted by Mazel, uh, but Mazel had died. And then Leonard, who isn't really a Bruckner specialist, uh, kind of took took it on, took the program on. So um, it was nice, you know, a big brass. That's a big brass. That's a big piece for brass. And, yeah, um, right. I just I went into it making sure that I didn't play too loud because that's you know could be a problem for me getting a little bit edgy um, with loud stuff. And it's funny because the last time I played Bruckner four was in Civic. Um, it was only for like a one rehearsal thing with Jaap van Sweden. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and a lot of uh, young young guys uh, in the back row in Civic trying to play loud. And at one point you just stop and you're just like, no. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it doesn't sound good when you do that. <laughs> and um, uh, so I was like, you know what? I, that's kind of my memory of that piece. So I think I'm going to go with that. And uh, I guess it was okay. <laughs> no no not that yeah so um uh yeah uh, they told me after the first week that i had passed and then i had to start moving so then i moved back to well from from helsinki to to detroit well that's amazing uh quite the uh roundabout way of getting there but um just for me is encouraging and inspiring. Um, anybody who's, you know, uh, succeeds in that way through obviously very hard work and just continued perseverance and trying to take lessons and just keep doing it better. Um, it's always good to see. One of the things I'm really interested about section players in general is how, you know, you're not doing your version in some ways of, what you would like to maybe do. I'm sure you don't necessarily disagree 100% of the time with what's happening, but you're sort of you through the principle. And so I'm curious, what kinds of, what does it look like for you in your life? It doesn't have to be in the orchestra to get some sort of artistic uh, 
I guess interest, I don't know if that's the right word, but like to push yourself artistically because sometimes the job is not necessarily going to do that in that way. Uh, what does that look like for you if you have some, I, you have a lot of stuff on your website, so I'm curious just how you got into doing those, those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, well, I think you asked a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, being a second player is, is all about following, matching, adapting, um, in a way, you know, since I had experience playing principal, I think playing second's a little more difficult because you kind of have to uh, anticipate what the principal player is going to do. You know, if it takes you a measure or a couple of notes to adjust, that's way too slow. And that's like, you know, you're not really matching then. Um, of course, in a professional situation where you're day in, day out with the same person, uh, after a while, you learn what. You can you can anticipate what's going to happen sure, more easily. Yeah. Um, uh, so I found switching to second a little challenging, honestly, because when you're playing principal um, and you're reading the music, it's just your way. Like, oh, I think it's going to go like this today, and so I'm going to play my way. And like, <laughs> um, of course, it's you're a member of the orchestra and. When you're playing principal trombone, you have to match the principal trumpet or horn, um, and your ear goes that way. But when you're playing second, your ear has to go to the principal or to the bass trombone, and sometimes it makes more sense to match that way. Um, so it is. it was a learning curve and um, a difficulty in the position of, of, of matching. Um, you, you, I think you put it correctly. Um, as far as some of the other things I do... Uh, yeah, on my website, I have some recordings of some recitals that I've played with um, with organ or string quartet and some solo pieces that I've done. Uh, you know, just just like f- projects for fun, projects that um, I kind of made for myself. Some of those recitals, uh, put them together because I thought it would be interesting. That's in, in terms of the string quartet one, something that people really don't do very often, trombone and string quartet. Um. It's not like I think about it like, oh, I'm so bored in the orchestra. I need to play a recital. Uh, it's just that I, I love playing chamber music or solo music or orchestral music. So, um, yeah, I, I look for opportunities to do that sort of stuff. Yeah. From all of the things that you've taken in through your education, through the jobs that you've done, through some of these other projects in terms of chamber music and solo playing, what would you say as a trombone player, as a musician, that you value uh, the most as a as a performer? That that is, if it's number one or a few things that are just more important than anything else that you hope the audience is able to hear from you. And so, how do you kind of go about uh, making sure that what you want the audience to hear and to experience is what you're able to do? Um, I mean, that's a great question, and. I think as as artists, we're always asking ourselves that, and I almost feel a little like I'm not ready to answer it. <laughs> but um, I'll give you a little bit of an answer. I mean, I guess um, <clears throat> the thing with like live music, especially classical music, um, because it is it's a recreation, right? The composer composes the, and the performer performs the, the, the composition that already exists and it will most likely be performed again in the future and has certainly been performed many times in the past. So it's, you have to kind of find a way to make 
the experience unique to the audience on that day or on that concert night. Um, so I find that a really interesting challenge, especially when I'm playing solo music, but even in the orchestra. Um, it's all about, for me, creating kind of a, a unique shared experience with the audience. Now, that can be created in a lot of different ways or manifested in a lot of different ways. Um, obviously, playing well, uh, playing technically well enough to be able to like put across your emotions, the emotions that you want to make the audience feel on that night. Whatever happens to you that day, like, you know, affects how you're going to play that night. Um, I guess that's what I'm always going for. Um, it's not really, how should I say? Yeah, I, it's, I'm a little bit at a loss for how to describe it more than that. Uh, I kind of have a little way to dig a little deeper because I agree with you that the emotional content is should be first and foremost. And I like the way you're describing that it, although it's something that's already been created and possibly performed a whole bunch of times, this group of people, it might be the first time they heard it. And so in that way, it's a new creation, right? Yeah. For the for the people who he hears it. For you um, to bring out emotion, kind of what does that mean? Because I feel like it gets into this sort of uh, esoteric part of like, oh, like hear, like feel your emotions, your emotions coming out. But for you, is there a process or is there a way you sort of uh, study or just like, what does that mean for you? Because for everybody, it's a little bit different. And I think it can be a bit nebulous sometimes. And I, uh, I feel like some sort of further exploration uh, with some, I guess, some some sort of a grounding principles might be uh, useful for people to try it out on their own. Life. Sure. Um, that I mean, that's definitely, you're, you are correct that it can be nebulous or feel like a cliche like play with emotion, you know, yeah. what, that's a total cliche. I guess what I'm, what I mean is if you hear, um, you know, I love listening to folk music, uh, both from America, but also the world, like, you know, folk music, all over the world. And you could really tell that the performer is, is doing something genuinely and that things are, are like, being created in that moment based on how the performer feels. It's really obvious in folk music because of the, the vernacular. Um, you have to attempt to do that in classical music. It's obviously a little bit different, um, but doing things genuinely and with, with, you know, emotional intention. Gosh, I'm just tripping over my words right now. Cause it's so nebulous. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, Technically, to be technical about it, I, th I always think about singing. You know, singing is, is I think most people would be able to recognize emotion in when they hear a singer, even if it's a different language or different musical style or uh, a different musical genre around the world. Um, so if we try to emulate singing in our brass playing, um, even if it's a, a Mahler chorale, you know, um, there's, it's there's emotion in it somehow. And it's, yeah. it's, it's everyone can hear, everyone knows it when they hear it to quote. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's one part I think is interesting. I would love your, your thoughts is I really believe there's 
a, a level of technical mastery that's required for sort of like true emotional output, right? Like you sort of have to have this level of mastery in order to remove the barriers that exist for like true emotional content to come out. So one thing I've struggled with a lot in my career is feeling that I heard this thing in my head that I wasn't capable of producing because of my technical limitations. And so I'm curious what encouragement you would have uh, for anybody who else feels that way of like why it's still worth it to try rather than be like, well, I can't do what I hear in my head. So like, why does it even matter? I just need to like keep getting better. And I feel like that's a frustrating cycle to be in. Sure. And so just some sort of encouragement you have for why it's worth digging in. How would we dig in and develop that side of our of our approach uh, while we're also developing the technical mastery needed to be able to do it? Totally. And this is actually so funny. Today is a Saturday that we're talking and I teach, um, I teach the civic or I teach the youth orchestra of the DSO on, on these Saturdays uh, online right now. And just today I was, we were, I, in my classes, I don't know how much the students hear, listen to brass music, you know, on their own, I'm going to say none. <laughs> so part of what I do is I actually do a little listening with them. Um, I pull out some of my favorite recordings and just today we were listening to Jim Markey. You know, his bass mm. trombone in, in Boston. He used to be a tenor trombonist, and his first CD, I think he recorded it when he was 24 years old. And um, there's amazing technical, like crazy stuff on it, but there's this one track that's a song called Willow Willow by Percy Granger. Um, and very simple, you know, quarter notes, half notes, what, what have you. Uh, but it's amazing how good he sounds <laughs> um playing it and how emotive he is and but i was trying to get the students to listen and I, I i always try to ask them like could you describe technically how he's producing that sound in order to like achieve the emotional end and i think that's exactly what you were talking about um as far as hearing it in your head or being discouraged if you don't have if you're not having it come out of the bell um I guess it's it's a little daunting, but you know you have to think the long long term, long term goal, long term success. Um, there's I love now that I'm a little older. I love going back to some pieces that used to be too hard for me, and like now I can play them a little bit better. Um, and it's so it's so um, uh, rewarding or. or almost vindicating uh, that I can like, oh, all the practicing lip slurs that I did, practicing like fast tonguing stuff, but now I can just play like this simple melody so much better, um, you know, because it all goes together. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to think about it. It's especially the long term. It's if we get into this game thinking that we'll be making enough progress that in even like one year, two years, it's going to be drastically different. I think it's possible, but we should really adjust our expectation of like really how long it takes, I think, to be able to achieve real true master, like what you're describing of Jim Markey. Of course, although he did it when he was 24. <laughs> well, he <laughs> got his 10. Just, yeah. just kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, of course, there's the famous, I don't even know if this is real, but you see it all on the, online, the Pablo Casal, his quote, he was like 92 or 94. Why do you keep practicing? Because I think I'm getting better. Um, yeah. So um, I I have spoken to some of my older uh, teachers, I think when I was kind of transitioning from teacher to colleague, and I realized that they weren't really happy with their own playing. And these are 
you know, my teachers that were at the top of their game, uh, much older, you know, toward the end of their careers. And at, at first, when I was younger, I thought, wow, like, how couldn't you be happy? Like, you know, you sound great. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, you're just uh, unrealistic or, you know, immodest. But I realize now that it's like, well, you know, <clears throat> if you're happy, then you stop improving. And it's not to say that you're not pleased but you know there's always the the ideal and the ideal ideally should never uh <laughs> is is you're never going to get there because you should be able to imagine something always better always better and better um i think everyone's different me personally that isn't a problem for me like even that i know right now i'll never be as good as i want to be but if pablo casal isn't either then i guess that's okay <laughs> sure it's good company yeah right. Yeah, I think it's it's this weird balance of being satisfied and not being satisfied. Yeah, exactly. Being satisfied enough to like be able to be happy throughout your day rather than hating on yourself, but not um not uh what's what, I used to have an orchestra director like fat I mean he wasn't you know his his saying was you're all like, you know, don't be lazy essentially is what he was saying. Like mm. don't be complacent. Yeah, exactly. That's a good lazy. way. That's a good word for it. Um, yeah, I think this is an important conversation because it's just, I think mindset is such a huge part of being mm-hmm. successful on the instrument. It's not just like, do I know how to practice or which I think is important or do I have the best exercises or do I have the best teachers? But how are you approaching the work on any given day? What's your mind frame? Are you clear ready to be focused and do great work or are you you know stressed from something else or are you mad or frustrated from your playing i think the way you approach it uh if you have sort of bad days or i mean we we can hear obviously you have a a very very young one with you so i'm sure your life isn't necessarily as like i like sort of strict and like you know straight lines as it may have been when you were in finland or something when you had more control over everything so if you have a stressful day and you got to go practice, do you have ways that you sort of bring yourself back into a space or do you just not practice that day or how do you approach that kind of thing? Yeah, totally what you were saying. I mean, when I was single or even when I was married, but without, without uh, my daughter right now, um, practicing was easy. <laughs> um, I could, you know, do whenever I wanted, how long I want. Um, and it was very, uh, yeah, it was very free. Not to say that I'm not free now, but big responsibilities. When you have responsibilities in life, you know, those take can take precedent. I will say that um, certainly my practicing now is more efficient. You know, it has to be. I used to practice for long, like, hours and hours. Um, I, won't, I don't think I was actually doing work for all of those hours. But, you know, I'd, like, be in the room or, like, I have my phone or you know, it would just, I'd be very inefficient. It would take me hours. I, I, I always would tell my wife, then my girlfriend, um, you know, oh, it takes me like 12 hours to practice six hours. That's how I would try to explain that to her. And now, now looking back, I'm like, oh, that was kind of stupid. <laughs> like maybe I should have practiced for six hours with six hours, you know, now, right. and now I don't even have time to practice six hours. So I probably do like I don't know, three to three to five. But um, I also am now a little more forgiving myself if I don't get to everything in a day. Um, I used to 
just feel very uncomfortable if I didn't get, you know, my normal practice day in. And that could be like, I only practice three hours today instead of five hours. I'm like, I'm like, this isn't good. And like, you know, yeah. I have a little more perspective now and it, it's okay. <laughs> um, uh, so, yes. Yeah. I think, you know, having kids is what did a bit did this to me too. Uh, just, yeah, that level of efficiency and kindness to yourself of like, you know what, there are more, just basically what you said, there's just, it's not the most important thing. I appreciate that you seem to have had that um, perspective for what sounds like a long time now that it's just, this is important to me, maybe not winning a job is the most important or whatever, but now, especially having a family and other projects and other things you care about, it's just one of the things that you have to get done and not necessarily the most important, everything else is subservient, but it's all just got to like fit in together. Right. I guess it hasn't been that long, only a year. (laughs) Well, Uh, yeah. But um, I mean, I also have a a great, you know, partner with my wife and that she will watch our daughter when I'm practicing, which can sometimes feel very selfish of me. Yeah. It's an interesting balance to, to go to, to do all of it together. And I think people who are successful, there's always somebody else behind the scenes or maybe you're behind the scenes for her career as well. And um, I think having that support is, is essential basically for, um, so I'm kind of curious, I suppose we could talk about this a little bit because what is your, what does your life organization look like at this stage? Like, how do you make sure you're able to do all the things and to do them successfully and that you're not just burnt out and what does rest look like for you? And just kind of going along because there's a lot of us are taking on new projects and the quarantine time and all that. And just what does it look like for you to manage and balance? And I'm assuming you're going to say, I haven't completely figured it out because none of us have, but any, any sort of perspective you have would be great. Um, well, I, I I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but I I don't feel burnt out very often, if if ever. Um, I'm kind of a not a workaholic, but like I don't mind having something all the time happening. You know, um, actually, kind of annoys my wife because like she always she like really would like to relax or go on vacation. I'm like uh, I don't really want to go on a vacation. <laughs> um, so. Um, back to your question what is a normal day let's say it, during the pandemic it's been you know it's been since march so that's kind of normal it's the new normal sure yeah um it's based all around my daughter's napping so i usually would play for like an hour and a half you know in the morning and then she'll nap and then she'll wake up in the afternoon and maybe i can do an hour and a half or two hours in the afternoon and then that's it so really my practicing is quite diminished you know it's only what did I just say? Three, three or four hours. Um, but that's okay. Um, I still feel like there are certain days where I only have enough time to sort of like maintain. There's, I have like a maintain practice day where I just try to not get worse. <laughs> um, but I, I, I feel like I've actually over the summer, I was practicing really well and I was, I was making some good progress with um, some little projects. I actually was, maybe going to do a, a a competition that ended up getting canceled, of course. So I kind of had a goal and um, in the quarantine with my daughter's napping, I was able to just get more efficient, like we talked about, um, shorter time, more focused, less phone breaks. <laughs> um, and, and it's just sort of a, you know, what's that, what's that um, phrase? 
necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, sort of at the back part of this interview, I'm kind of curious. This is the vulnerable part of the interview. Uh, I'm kind of curious if there's any, it could be literally anything. Could be career related, could just be some sort of personal life uh, thing. Um, Just if there's any sort of things you've gone through that have taught you incredibly valuable lessons you may not have learned or probably wouldn't have learned without it what that perspective is, kind of how it makes it real for you. I'm just kind of curious if you have any of that you might be willing to share with me and my listeners to help us get to know you in that way, but then also to possibly be able to learn some of those lessons and apply them to ourselves. Yeah, um, I would say that I have a... How should I put this? I have a a slight issue in my playing that I'm able to hide very well. Um, And it's... Uh, it began very quickly uh, when I was 18, like the, uh, like just a few months before I started at Northwestern. And I hid it. I hid it from my teachers, um, you know, for all those years because I was like kind of embarrassed. And I was also like a freshman and I wanted to impress them and um, wanted to prove, prove myself, prove to everyone that I was like, you know, good or wanted to be at Northwestern. And um, I wish, looking back, you know, that I'd been a little more honest or vulnerable and like, hey, could could you help me with this problem I have <laughs> rather than hiding it? Um, so unfortunately, like so many things, when habits kind of get ingrained after years and years, um, so it's taken a long time to kind of get more comfortable with it, but it's still there if I aren't, if I'm not focusing on the solution. If I, if I sort of not paying attention or if I think about it, you know, it like kind of creeps in a little bit and, um, it's very frustrating, very, very frustrating when that happens. Cause it can be like, uh, actually Charlie Geyer at Northwestern, um, he heard it one time and he was like, when we were talking about it and he said, well, it's like, uh, it's like you're an alcoholic, like you can, you can fix it, but it'll be there the rest of your life. Yeah. And, you know, Honestly, looking back, that probably wasn't a good thing for him to tell me. <laughs> and actually, I worked on this with with Pat Sheridan a little bit, and I told that to Pat, and Pat was like, "That's terrible advice." <laughs> <laughs> um, but unfortunately, you know, whether <clears throat> uh, unfortunately, it's proving to be true. Mm-hmm. So, um, it is a really frustrating thing to try to 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 feel like it's something is fixed or overcome. But it's uh, you know always there on the under the surface if I if I'm not concentrating on on the right things. So you know it's 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 actually pretty common even among high level professionals to have something. I, I I don't think he'd mind me saying this, but Michael Mulcahy, my teacher, he even mentions that there's like one note for him that he has to just think about you know five percent more for him to not. To, for him to play it well. And when he said that, I was like, wow, that's so... He didn't tell me that for like, it, until I was way out of school. I hope I didn't, just didn't get, give away a secret. Um, <laughs> but it made me realize that even high-level professionals all have, or some, have a, um, you know, something in the back of their head about their playing that has to be worked on or thought yeah. about. And... Um, I guess, you know, if I could go back to when I was 18, I wish I had worked on it back then rather than try to be, you know, the big guy and and, and hide it. You know what I mean? 
Absolutely. And, and for you, it was, it's this issue with your playing, but I think uh, the, metaf- the uh, metaphor, but the example would apply literally to many aspects of lives. Like if, you know, I interviewed Carrie Schaefer a few, uh, like a month ago or so, and it's a similar thing, it, but it was with actual alcoholism, you know, and she's just hiding it from people and it's there. And I'm sure she would say now that, you know, it's something that is quote fixed, but is, you know, if she's not careful and the way she handles things. And I think it's a good, in general, a good thing to think about in, for, for people that the, the way out of those kinds of things is exactly what you just said is just vulnerability. Whether you're hiding an issue with your playing or you're like, there's a personal issue going on or difficult relationships, being able to open up and share with someone and having the vulnerability to do that seems to me to be one of the fastest and most effective ways out. It just requires trust. And that doesn't, that's hard to come by sometimes. Yeah. I mean, especially uh, speaking personally, you know, I'm still not very, I'm not a very vulnerable person, (laughs) but certainly when I was younger, you know, I didn't, it's not like you, I'm not like I consciously chose, I'm not going to be vulnerable now, (laughs) Um, but it's just, it just wasn't natural or it felt very unsafe. And I guess that's why it's sort of a kind of common human trait to, to not, to avoid feeling not safe. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing, and I hope that uh, anyone out there listening can, if they're dealing or struggling with something, whether it's a playing thing or like we discussed, hopefully it's uh, an encouragement to them to to learn from whatever you feel like you wish you would have done in that regard. So uh, I appreciate you being willing to share that. I appreciate all of your time in general, man. It's it's I loved this interview for a lot of reasons. The advice and just being able to connect with you in this way is awesome. But I love that I just got to like hear that your life is happening, right? <laughs> like it's, I feel that sometimes I get into a space about my podcast where I'm like, I'm going to now leave my life as a family person and I'm going to go over here and podcast as if it's possible to compartmentalize those things. And I just love that it's like your life is happening at the exact same time. And it's because like, that's just how life is. It's not always clean and, and cut. It's messy a lot. Yeah. And with the small house, I, um, I'm practicing in the basement, but my daughter will come down here quite often and, and have to play. And it feels really stupid to like play a long tone while like your little baby's on the floor. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, the life's happening at the same time very much. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just cool to see. Um, and uh, I just, like I said, I appreciate your time. If someone listened to this and they thought David Mender sounds like the coolest guy in the entire world. Well, then they need to meet uh, new people. <laughs> uh, well, if they want to get in touch with you in some capacity to either uh, reach out and say they enjoyed the episode or if they have any you know, questions about anything, uh, how would someone be able to find you? Um, the best way would probably be my website, which is davidbender.net. And there's a uh, a contact form on that site, and also on the site is um, some of the some of the recordings that you mentioned, as well as uh, a few other goodies. And then, I, I guess right now, if you're in the Detroit area, it's hard to go see you. But uh, uh, where would someone be able to find live streams of of Detroit if they wanted to hear some of that group play? Yeah, um, everything's on DSO.org. There are archival. Uh, streams from years ago and they're also now new live streams uh, live live streams um, that are I believe they are ticketed so I believe it's like $10 a stream and as I just mentioned 
probably an hour ago, um, I actually am not playing on very many of them because mm. they are reduced instrumentation. Right. Um, but the DSO has a pretty good YouTube page um, of some previous performances. Uh, so I guess that would be the best and the most, uh, the freest <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah, so check any of that stuff out. Um, I, If you need to get in touch with me, you can do so at thatsnotspit.com. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at thatsnotspit. If you enjoyed this episode or anything like that, I'd appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review on iTunes. And do not forget to share it on social media so other people can find the episode and enjoy it for themselves as well. Thank you one more time. David Bender, great to reconnect with you and do this episode with you. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. And thanks, everyone, for listening. I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.